You know, fellowship is so important, isn't it? I want to know the Lord more. I'm hungry, and that's why we come together. Iron sharpens iron, and we're not to forsake the assembling of ourselves together as the manner of some is, but exhorting one another so much the more as we see the day approaching. And we we desperately need each other. We need the encouragement. We need the, the worship to invite Christ to be here in our presence. And his living word now, um, let's pray that it feeds our, our hungry souls. Romans chapter 8, 12 through 17. Therefore, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit of God, these are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption by whom we cry out, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, that we may also be glorified together. You may be seated. I want to start out this morning just reminding us of this incomprehensible debt that we owe the Lord. This morning we observed the Lord's Supper. And we understand that it took a sacrifice. It took death in order to give us new life. The debt that we owe Christ is immeasurable. The depth of his love, the depth of his giving, we'll never be able to pay that debt back. And I don't want to guilt you out today and say, I've got to do all the things I have to do as a Christian because I'm under this huge amount of debt. Instead, I want to remind you that we do what we do for Christ because we love him. Jesus was invited to Simon the Pharisee's house for lunch. And as he was sitting at lunch, a woman came in and she began to anoint the feet of Jesus. She was so overcome by love that she began to weep at his feet. And she took the ointment and her tears mingled together and began to wipe the feet of Christ with her own hair. And Simon, being a pious Pharisee, looked at Jesus and thought to himself, if this man were truly a prophet, if this was a man of God, he would know what kind of woman this was. So he turns to Simon. He says, Simon, I've got a parable to tell you. There were two debtors. One owed 
several million dollars. The other one owed a day's wage. And he said, I forgive you both. Simon, which one is going to love the most? Simon didn't take long to figure that answer out. He says, to whom was forgiven the most? And Jesus turned and he said, I've got something to say to you, Simon. Simon, I came into your home. I entered your house. You gave me no water for my feet, but this woman has washed my feet with her tears and wiped them with the hair of her head. You gave me no kiss, but this woman since the time I came has not ceased kissing my feet and my head. She is anointed with oil, and you did not anoint me. I tell you, her sins that are many are forgiven, for she loved much. Now, we're tempted to look at that phrase, for she loved much, to think that she had somehow merited or earned her salvation. The word for, in the original language, has the idea Evidence, because of. Look at the evidence, Simon. She has been forgiven. All you have to do is look at her life, and it resonates this incredible debt that she senses that she has. Her entire past has been forgiven, and she is here weeping over my feet. You gave me nothing. We know that this is what Jesus meant as we continue to read. He says, She loves much because she has been forgiven much. But to whom little has been forgiven, there is little love. And it doesn't mean that some of us have less sin than others. What it means is some of us don't see the depth of our own need for Christ. But when we do, we sense this overwhelming debt that we have. And Paul writes to Romans, he says, therefore, because of all the things I said in that first paragraph of chapter 8, we are in debt. The woman got it, didn't she? Jesus finished his discussion with the woman and he said, your faith has saved you. It wasn't her shedding her tears. It wasn't wiping the feet. That was evidence that she knew she had been forgiven. And she sensed this love obligation that she had for her Savior. I hope every one of us today can say, I want to know you, Lord. I want to know you more and more and more. I want to cry out to you. I want to thirst for you as a deer pants for the water brook so my soul longs for you as in a dry and thirsty land. I hope we say, as Peter said, when all the other people were leaving Jesus, where else can I go? For you have the words of eternal life. We are debtors. 
we are eternally indebted for the work of the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity makes our faith to be realized. That means fully apprehended, fully achieved. It's the Spirit that regenerates us. It makes us fully alive. Titus 3, 5 says, Not by works of righteousness which you have done, but according to His mercy He has saved you by the washing of regeneration and the renewing of the Holy Ghost. The Holy Spirit makes salvation realized for you and I. So we have this incredible debt to the work of the Spirit. Jesus said this in John chapter 1, As many as receive me, to them I give the right to become children of God, who are not born of blood, who are not born of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but are born of God. And then in chapter 3, he told Nicodemus, you must be born again. That which is born of the Spirit is spirit. It is the Spirit that realizes it for us. It fully achieves salvation. It has nothing to do with you and I. He regenerates us. The Spirit breathes life into us. The Holy Spirit also actualizes or makes our salvation practical through living it out. It is the Spirit of God that does that. Faith becomes a part of our everyday experience by the empowerment of the Holy Spirit. Jesus said this in Acts chapter 1 and verse 8, You shall receive power when the Holy Spirit comes upon you, and you shall be witnesses unto me both in Jerusalem and Judea and all Samaria and unto the uttermost part of the earth. It's the Spirit of God that generates us to live the Christian life. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 25, if we live in the Spirit, and that if is a first-class condition, he's writing to believers, and what he means to say is because or since you live in the Spirit, then he gives an imperative command, let us also continue to walk in the Spirit. We owe the flesh absolutely nothing. It did nothing for you and I except to give us headaches. Sometimes hangovers or whatever it was. The flesh profits nothing. Paul starts out this passage with the word, Therefore, brethren, we are debtors. And so we've got to just kind of look back in chapter 8 and glance at it again and ask ourselves, Why am I a debtor to the Holy Spirit? First of all, in 8.1, there's no condemnation. I am a debtor because I am no longer under God's condemnation. Secondly, the law of the Spirit has freed me from the law or the principle of sin. There's a new guiding principle in my life, and it's the Holy Spirit, and that Spirit brings me life, so I'm a debtor to it. Thirdly, the righteous righteous requirements of the law, they are fulfilled in those who are walking according to the Spirit. Galatians chapter 5 and verse 22, we have the fruit of the Spirit. And at the end of that passage, Paul says, And against these things there is no law. All of God's righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled when you and I are walking in the Spirit. We love. We have joy. We have peace. We're long-suffering. We're kind. We're gentle. We're meek. 
We have self-control. All of the righteous requirements of the law are fulfilled when we are walking in the Spirit. Therefore, we're debtors to the Spirit. Fourthly, when our minds are on the Spirit, we have life. We have real life. We understand what this world is all about. It's like the blinders are taken off. And we have peace. We have a sense of assurance that I belong to God and that He belongs to me, that I have Him as my Savior. And then fifthly, Paul says, the Spirit that raised Christ from the dead, it's also going to raise up your mortal bodies. Therefore, we're debtors. One day you and I are going to be resurrected and we are going to be like Him for we shall see Him as He is. And everyone who has that hope in Him purifies Himself, even as He is pure. Therefore, you and I are debtors to live after the Spirit. We owe the flesh absolutely nothing. I was talking to a man this week who struggles with different areas of his flesh. And so he began reading this book. And it was a secular book, but... It had a biblical principle. And as we were talking, he explained the illustration that this author gave. And he says, we have these habits that just drive us. And we do the same thing over and over and over again. And somehow, it always takes us to a place we don't want to go. And somehow when we begin to dabble with that bad habit, but I'm not going to say it's a bad habit, we begin to dabble with that sin, somehow in our minds we think that it's not going to take me to the same destination. But every time it's going to take us to the same place. And that's exactly what the flesh does. It tells us, try it one more time. Yeah, I'm going to take you to the exact same place, but maybe it's going to be different this time. No, it's always the same destination. And the flesh always ends in death. That is separation, loneliness, emptiness, unfulfilledness, broken relationships that are severed. That's where the flesh always takes us. We owe it absolutely nothing. We are not debtors to the flesh. What does the flesh do? The flesh is in, incapable of fulfilling the law of God. Romans 8, 2. In what the law could not do, in that it was weak, through what? Through the flesh. Our flesh has no ability to fulfill God's law. Our flesh is at enmity with the mind of God. Our flesh cannot submit to God, and our flesh, we cannot please God. So we owe it absolutely nothing. So instead, you and I are children because we've been born of the Spirit, and as Children, we are led by the Spirit. Let's look at verse 13. For if we live according to the flesh, if we get on that route and we follow that path again, do whatever that habit was or whatever that sinful desire is, it's going to take us right to that destination. But if by the Spirit you put to death the practices of the body, you will live. For as many as are led by the Spirit, these are the sons of God. The sons of God, the ones who are being led, are the sons of God. There's no in-between. 
These are Christians. These are believers. Ones who are present tense, present active indicative. It's a reality. You are being guided by the Spirit. That doesn't mean you're perfect. Far from it. But it does mean that you are being guided and so you are keenly aware of your sin. You are keenly aware of the things that God wants you to do because it is the Spirit of Christ that is leading you. So children are led by the Spirit. Those who are led by the Spirit are putting to death the deeds of the body. The practices that our members continually do. And this again is a present tense verb. Verse 13b, those by the Spirit, if you are putting to death over and over again the deeds of the body, you will live. The Spirit is the agent by which we defeat sin. It's that simple. It's not a battle that I try to will it in my own power, my own energy, my own strength. The agent is the Spirit. The Spirit has equipped you and I for what I call neurological surgery. I got that from the Phillips translation. The Phillips translation is sort of a, a loose paraphrase, but it uses the, the Greek, so it's, it actually is a translation. But this is the way Phillips translates it. You cut the nerve of your instinctive actions by obeying the Spirit. That's what we do. When you feel that temptation and the Spirit of God you cut that neurological impulse that goes from your brain to your members of your body that says, I want to do this, I want to think this, I want to say that, and you are putting it to death by the Spirit. So this is not a moralistic approach to life. Rather, it's a process. And I'm going to give you this definition. This is a Patrickism. This my, my definition, but I, this is what I see as putting to death our members. It's a process where we seek the freedom from bondage that our flesh brings, and we actively seek release from God's power through the Spirit of Christ who dwells in us. Now, I didn't get that from my own wisdom. I got it from Ephesians chapter 4, 22 through 24. And let me read that verse that you put off. So it's a process of seeking freedom from bondage from our flesh. We are to put off concerning our former behavior. Our old man, who, by the way, is corrupt according to the deceitful lust. The second part of my definition is we seek to release the freedom of God's power through Christ's indwelling presence. So the rest of that verse goes like this. We are renewed in the spirit of our mind that you put on the new man, which is after God created in righteousness and true holiness. So there's a putting off and a putting on. That's what it means to mortify. That's what it means to put to death. And those who are led by the Spirit are obeying God's promptings. So this is both negative and positive. You're obeying the Spirit to saying, I don't need to do that. I don't need to think that way. I don't need to talk like this. And then the positive side is I am putting on the very nature of Christ in my mind. So let's try to make this practical. 
This is what I call the deeper Christian life, the deeper spiritual life. And Christians seem to fall in one rut or one ditch or the other. Some think the deeper spiritual life is a moralistic rules, regulations, traditions that I will strictly follow and I will adhere to, and if I don't measure up, I have failed. That's one side of the rut. We see another side of the rut that says the deeper spiritual life is found in some kind of mystical, ecstatic, fairy, fairy land. And that I just sort of sit and I veg out and um, God zap me. But that, that's not it either. The deeper spiritual life is a practical process of allowing God's Holy Spirit-breathed Word to live in your heart. I'm going to give you five A's. That way you can remember them. I got this from the Peacemaker book. He, he liked to have all these, the seven C's or the four, six, four A's. Or whatever. But I'm going to give you five A's so you can remember them this morning. So this is how you and I can put to death our members. It's a spiritual process. It's not a list of rules, but it's taking God's living word and applying it to your life. The first one, if I want to mortify my practices, I have got to ask the Holy Spirit to search my heart. So it's ask. Ask the Holy Spirit to search you. And here's the scripture reference. I tried to limit them all to the book of Psalms so you can remember them. Psalm 139, 23 and 24. The psalmist said this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me. Put me in the fire and test my anxious thoughts. And see if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the way everlasting. So when I'm going to mortify my deeds, the first place I start is I ask the Holy Spirit, Spirit of God, you search me because my heart is deceitful and desperately wicked above all things. You show me. The next A, avoid people and situations that appeal to your flesh. That's just common sense, isn't it? If I'm going to mortify my flesh then I avoid those things that are going to appeal to my flesh, those people in those situations. Here's my psalm, Psalm 1. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful. The next A is align your thoughts with the word of God. Blessed is the man who walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of the sinner, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but he aligns his thoughts. Blessed is the man who meditates on the word of God day and night. He will be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that brings forth his fruit in his season. And whatsoever he does shall prosper. So that's our third A, is you align your thoughts with the word of God. The next A is to anchor your heart to God. The psalmist said this in Psalm 57, 7. Oh, Lord, my God, my heart is fixed. It is anchored. It is set. It's unmovable. 
And then, when the Lord reveals your sin, acknowledge it promptly, the last day. David said this in Psalm 51.3, I acknowledge my sin, it is ever before me. And in verse 12, he says this, Restore unto me the joy of thy salvation. So this is the method that you and I have victory over sin. For as many as are led by the Spirit, His prompting to pursue sanctification, the leading of the Spirit, and to be actively involved in ministry to other people. So what comes with that? The second point is the Spirit informs us that all of us belong to Christ, 15 to the end of the chapter. So let me just read 15 to 17. For you did not receive the spirit of bondage again to fear, but you received the spirit of adoption, whereby we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are the children of God. And if children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and joint heirs with Christ. If indeed we suffer with him, we will also be glorified together. Sonship is the first thing that Paul says here that informs us that we are Christ, that tells us it's the Spirit of God that informs us that we belong to Christ. The Holy Spirit testifies within our hearts, our human spirit, that we belong to Him. So sonship, the Spirit gives us assurance that indeed we belong to God and we have a new dynamic relationship with him in a living way that we didn't have before. When Paul uses the word adoption here, he is alluding to a Roman law whereby a father would take someone who was a slave. And this slave was so faithful and so trustworthy that the father wants to make this slave one of his own sons who has all the rights and all the privileges as if he was his own child. And then he also becomes an heir to that father's estate. This is what Paul is alluding to and those first original readers would have completely understood what this adoption meant. You and I were former slaves and Christ has adopted adopted us and he doesn't give us a spirit of fear unto slavery that's where you and I were we previously were slaves to sin our flesh did whatever it was told to do and we bowed down to the slave master of our flesh but thanks be to God you obeyed that form of doctrine that was delivered to you once being slaves of sin, now you have become slaves of righteousness. Romans chapter 6. So Paul is taking this scenario and applying it to the believer. The last step in this adoption process was that the father would then take the document of adoption and he would take reputable eyewitnesses and have it stamped and sealed officially, making this one a son. The Holy Spirit is our seal until the day of redemption. He is the witness, the official witness that recognizes you and I as God's sons. 
So we didn't receive a spirit of fear and begin to bondage. Before our natural man, we were subject to bondage to sin, and we were also subject to fear all of our lifetime. Tells us in the book of Hebrews that Jesus did not take upon himself the form of an angel. But because the children are flesh and blood, he likewise took part of the same, so that through death he might destroy him who had the power of death. Through death they were all their lifetime subject to bondage. That's what bondage, bondage produces, fear. And we don't receive that again. Once this transaction of adoption is placed... This slave, or whoever this child was, all of his previous debts were eliminated. All of his infractions were erased. His reputation then was assumed by the father's reputation. The name that the father had then was given to the adopted son. That is you and I. For this transaction to become binding, like I said before, it required the testimony of reliable witnesses. And for us, it is the Spirit that bears witness with our spirit that we are the sons of God. But what does this son cry out? He cries out, Abba, Father. There's very few times in the New Testament where Aramaic phrases are used. But often they are left untranslated because they are almost untranslatable because they are so intimate so deep that the original writers didn't even want to change the wording Talitha Kumai this little girl get up and rise an intimate saying by Jesus when Jesus went and he cried in the garden he cried out Abba Father If it is possible, let this cup pass from me. Now there's a Greek word for Abba, but it doesn't have the same connotation that the Aramaic word had. I was reading about this man who visited Syria, and there was this little boy walking in the street, and he got separated in the crowd from his father. And the little boy began to cry out, Abba, 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 Daddy, Daddy, Papa, my security, the one who guides me, the one who loves me, where are you? And that's what God gives you and I. He seals us with this intimate relationship with God. It's an intense word for a passionate love. So, We receive sonship through the Holy Spirit. And we also receive an inheritance by the sealing of the Holy Spirit. We become the child. Adopted children have obtained all the rights and privileges, including that of an inheritance. Look at our inheritance real quickly in verse 17. And if we are children, Paul uses all these ifs. And the ifs are all first-class conditions in the original language, which means that if or because they are true, 
Because we are children, what is the natural result? If God has adopted us, and under this Roman law system, that child received all the inheritance that belonged to him as a legal heir, then we are heirs, we are heirs and joint heirs with Christ. Now what kind of inheritance does Christ have? We're told in the book of Hebrews that God in various times, in various ways, spoke in times past to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he has appointed heir of all things. We are joint heirs with Christ. God has not subjected the world to come to angels. God has subjected the world to come to you and I. As it says in Psalm 8, O Lord, our Lord, how wonderful is thy name! How majestic is your name in all the earth! Who has set thy glories above the heavens out of the mouth of babes and sucklings? You have ordained strength. You have put all things under our feet, all sheep, oxen, the beasts of the field, the fowl of the air, and the fish of the sea, and whatever passes through the pass of the sea. O Lord, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. We don't see all things under our feet right now, do we? But what do we see? We see Jesus, who was made a little lower than the angels, who was crowned with glory for the suffering of death, that he, by the grace of God, might taste death for every one of us. And he is going to reinstate that inheritance. And we are joint heirs with Christ. And what does God do to prepare us for this? He uses suffering. There's something mystical. There's something powerful. There's something unexplainable that God does through suffering. And if we suffer with Christ we become more and more like Christ. tells us in 1 Peter chapter 4 that these sufferings that you and I experience, we stop living the rest of our life to the passions of our flesh, and we become more and more like Jesus. And so we know that if we go through these sufferings with Him, The same way Jesus is glorified, we too will be glorified. We have an incredible debt, and that debt is to live by the guiding principle of the Holy Spirit. We ask God to search our hearts. We avoid circumstances and places that are going to draw us into sin. We align ourselves with the Word of God. And we acknowledge sin when it surfaces in our lives. So today, I hope that you understand how easy it is to walk in the Spirit. We don't do it by our own strength. We don't do it by our moralistic rules and rituals. And we don't do it by some spiritual, mystical experience. We do it practically. And we look at those deeds. We look at those practices. And we ask the Holy Spirit by the divine power of God indwelling in us, to mortify them, and then we follow Christ's leading. If we live in the Spirit, let's also walk in the Spirit. Father, God, you have given us such a simple but powerful plan for living the Christian life. And God, you have made this 
Christian life a realization and you've made it an actualization where we actually can feel it and sense it and experience it. And so, Lord, we acknowledge today that because of what you have done, we are debtors. We don't want to live any longer to our flesh. We want to live our lives under the guidance and under the control of the Holy Spirit. So today, God, I just ask that you take these passages that we've studied today, write them on the fleshly tablets of our heart, not with ink, but by the Spirit of the living God. We pray this for your glory in Jesus' name. Amen.